All right, take your Bibles and turn to the minor prophet Micah. Micah, find your way there. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. That's where we're going to be landing this morning. Micah chapter 5. And I I want to say uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, We can say that here because this is a church and and we're Christians. Uh, and, And being that being the last Sunday before Christmas, it's only right that I think we interrupt our series in the book of Hebrews and direct our attention to the miracle of the incarnation of Christ and the great significance that it holds for God's people everywhere. We haven't the time, of course, this morning to to take a comprehensive look at just how significant it is in all its aspects, but we can single out one aspect, the aspect of hope. Bound up in the incarnation of Christ is the hope for all God's people. It's the hope of humanity, really. And even that aspect itself is rather comprehensive, so we're going to look at one small part of that topic, and that is the hope bound up in the incarnation should motivate God's people to press onward and upward, to quote James Lowell. We're to be motivated by this great hope bound up in the incarnation to press on in our faith until until God takes us home. Now, that is onward and upward in our faith, and especially during troublesome times. We, we heard that in, in the prayer this morning, in fact, as well, in difficult times. After all, the Son of God took on flesh in a time when God's people were under difficult times, didn't he? God's people need, then, to be properly motivated to press on in the faith, in every context of difficulty, and would do well to look to the hope that the Incarnation gives for that motivation. So I'm very excited to get into this with you this morning. Let me paint a real and painful scenario for you as we get ready to hear the importance of hope from the Incarnation. Very real and painful scenario. God's people, I believe, are coming to a culmination of sorts. What I mean by that is that they have for a long time now been subject both to internal corruption with within their own ranks and, and along with all citizens of the nation have been experiencing the negative influences of an oppressive and wicked political party that is now in place. This party wants to suppress any free expression of faith. They they also intend to get richer by imposing unreasonable taxes. The rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer and the middle class, well, they'll just fall out of existence. The worst of it all is that this party has become the operative arm of even a foreign superpower that is interested in controlling the nation's monetary system, acquiring its land, and wants to weaken it. It already has invaded and become successful in influencing the political direction of the nation. You can imagine, then, how Micah must have felt. Wait a minute, who? Micah? Micah who? (laughs) Micah the prophet. 
I've just been describing the depressing religious and political landscape of Israel during the ministry of Micah the prophet. Oh, did you think that I was talking about the church and the current political turmoil in America right now? No, I wasn't. But since you bring it up, there are unmistakable parallels between the context that God's people faced in the 8th century BC and the one that God's people face in our 21st century. So let me fill this out for you. Let me begin first with the context that God's people faced in Micah's day. And it was, in a word, tragic, to say the least, on two fronts. I mentioned them already. There had been, of course, internal corruption in God's kingdom of priests for a long time. There were social injustices that had been taking place in Samaria as far back as the ministries of Amos and Hosea. Now, a whole generation later, we find Micah, along with his contemporary Isaiah, speaking of the same kind of social injustices that had prevailed in Samaria and are now amid her prostitute sister city, Jerusalem. There was a ruling class in Israel too, believe it or not, the rich landowners. They were driving honest and hardworking farmers off their own land. And as Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke describes it, quote, into an unrelieved, dependent economic status that was producing a shocking contrast between extreme wealth and dire poverty, end quote. To put it another way, the middle class was being eliminated. And this time in Israel's history, if you uh, were not one of the few wealthy in Israel, uh, then you were poor. And we're all too familiar with that kind of society. We've seen it repeated many times throughout history and the atrocities that it causes. It was in the USSR a while back. Cuba, Venezuela, China, to name a few. Furthermore, the nation was characterized by dishonest practices. Corrupt judges and prophets who could be bought left the vulnerable without a voice. And here's another situation that we've become all too familiar with, well acquainted with. National leadership that was supposed to protect the people were now taking advantage of the people. You see, the, the Lord put all political power in Israel into the hands of the kings who were supposed to protect God's people against such injustices. He sanctioned prophets to hold the judges accountable and he ordained priests to teach the people covenant values. But over time, there was a grand and wicked reversal. Listen to how Micah describes it in chapter 3. He says in verse 9, rulers of the house of Israel despise justice and twist everything that's straight. He says of the prophets in verse 5, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepared to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. In other words, they sold out to the highest bidder. And in verse 11, he tells us that the priests were no better. They taught only for a price. As we might expect, the nation eventually became apostate, but in a counterfeit way. 
You can read all about it in chapter 6. They insisted in practicing the forms of their religion, sacrificing, offerings, assembling, but there was no substance to any of it. They were essentially mandating a system of faith, much in the same way that that Constantine would uh, with Christianity in the Roman Empire centuries later. Micah's time was surely one of the seasons in the history of God's people where they praised the Lord with their lips, but their heart was far from them, from him. Tragic result was that Israel w- was beyond saving. It reached the point of no return. The leaders were so corrupt, they, they couldn't even see the gradual infil- infiltration of the Assyrian a- army uh, that was, by the way, behind the riots in their streets as a direct consequence of Israel's disobedience. God was preparing to judge them now. Can we draw a parallel from this to the church's situation today? Well, there's no question that the church at large in America has entered into a season of apostasy and compromise. We took over a year in our study of the book of Judges to to see not only that there are seasons in the history of God's people when that happens, but also that by all historical accounts, history seems to be repeating itself today. Many church leaders and popular Christian authors and some rather famous Christian personalities have either fallen away from the faith to our shock or capitulating to the ideas expressed by public consciousness that amount to destructive error and are teaching them to the churches. Now, internal corruption is only half of the parallel, remember. The other half is the pressure that the depraved world exerts on God's people. In Micah's day, Israel was was feeling the pressure of the Assyrians, who were already in their midst and and having their way. Tiglath-Pileser III started taking possession of Israel's land piece by piece. Israel had to pay a tribute to him. Eventually, he governed the land. His successor, Shalmaneser V, besieged Samaria, and his successor, Sargon II, captured it in the end. Sargon got rid of anyone with any influence in Israel. Walke, again, explains, quote, exacting the extreme measure of subjugation in order to neutralize the land against further revolts he, that is Sargon, deported Israel's upper classes. Gone. The theocracy had fallen, and God's people were thrust in a new environment run by a corrupt superpower that would take advantage of them. Hmm, sounds familiar. Since the time of the theocracy, beloved, there has never been a time that I am aware of when the people of God in any era ever existed outside the rule of a worldly government. And that, of course, is to be expected. Christians are not interested in having their own country. They belong to God's kingdom that will become reality for them in God's perfect time. And it is a good thing for Christians to be in and among the lost of every nation, in any era. That's how God reaches depraved people through his church in the world. And the New Testament is clear about how we are to operate until his kingdom comes. We need to be model citizens. Submit to authority unless it becomes sin to do so. Pray for secular leaders. Be at peace with all men. 
as much as it is possible for us to do that. Return good for evil. Bless those who persecute us. Be salt and light. That's all a good thing. What's not good, and it is the situation in which true believers find themselves today, is when the body of Christ at large becomes apostate or compromised in the midst of a secular worldly government. This is the worst of both worlds, and that can be a rather challenging place to live for those of us who mean business for Christ. It's like the perfect anti-Christian storm. And if true believers haven't placed their hope and trust and reliance in the right object, they risk being swept up in the midst of this unholy storm. So what is the right object of hope on, or the right object of hope, rather, on which we are to, 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 to place all our, our trust? What is the right object that we are to... Uh, look to and focus all our energies upon when we face eternal corruption in the church while living under an oppressive government? It's a good question. Let me say it is not the country in which we live, the very worldly government itself, much less corrupt government leaders, no matter how much they claim to have your best interest in mind. You might have thought that that's Obvious. Well, of course we shouldn't put our trust in that. Well, not so fast. There are plenty of Christians who are motivated to press on in life by hoping in a better economy, by hoping in tax cuts, a well-deserved stimulus package. There is plenty that the world offers that many in the church find satisfying and even sufficient for their kind of lifestyle, even though all of it comes from a corrupt society. And that's a problem. Just remember, all, that, all the earthly benefits that you can ever amass for yourself in this world are still no, earth, uh, no heavenly good. Psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Now let me hasten on to another object of hope that is also equally popular and equally unable to deliver, and that is the church itself. The church is not the best candidate for the foundation of our hope and stay. Even sound reformed churches? Yes, even those. All Christian movers and shakers, beloved, have clay feet. All of them. And Christians can let us down. Those in the church who, who have sought their stability in the church, and there's more of them that you th than you think, in pastors and deacons and other church members, well, they've learned the hard way that that's a mistake. As a result of being mistreated or deceived or feeling used or let down, a good many of them leave the church. Some never even come back. And some others will, well, just relocate to other bodies and take their vulnerabilities with them, and they never learn. What is the object of our trust, our security, our stability, our future, our joy and happiness that, that we should hold close to our hearts, especially in the worst of times imaginable? 
What is the, it's the exact same object to which Micah now draws the attention of the faithful few, the remnant of Israel. It is this, Messiah, and what he will accomplish, and the fact that he is coming, and his coming is imminent. That's what. Let me be more specific. Micah's Israel knew that Messiah would come from the line of David and be born into this world. He would bring salvation to his people, both spiritual salvation, which he accomplished at his first coming, and physical deliverance from this earthly realm to his divine kingdom, which he'll accomplish at his second coming. How well they understood the time frame of all of this in two comings is, well, hard to tell. There are clear Old Testament prophecies of both Advents and what Messiah will accomplish in both. However you want to argue it, there is no denying that all of Messiah's future accomplishments were part of the remnant's hope, all of it. And these same accomplishments, with the exception of those that Jesus already fulfilled at his first coming, will they remain our hope as well. So Jesus Christ, the subject of the Old Testament prophecies, this object of our trust, must be it must be that, that, that blessed reality for us that we see along with the Old Testament saints from afar, although we're much closer to it than they ever were. It must remain our focal point, our desire, our longing if we are to push through seasons of apostasy and compromise and end-time calamities and false Christs, no matter how gloomy or lugubrious. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does lugubrious mean? It means gloomy. <clears throat> but here's the other thing. You're saying, well, this is easier said than done. We Christians are still housed in the flesh, Pastor Bob. I mean, we're still connected to this earthly kingdom in some inescapable respect. We feel the tugs and temptations that, that can give birth to sin. We fight. We, we struggle. And, and let's face it, fighting the good fight in that place where apostasy and compromise and worldly influences all converge can be, well, wearisome and quite daunting. There's so much to contend with on so many fronts. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, Micah was in that place, and we are in it now, yes. And I want to encourage you this morning with four propositions from Micah 5, verse 1. Just four. These are related truths that come from this verse and I believe are so appropriate to our Christmas celebration because they all have to do with the birth and exaltation of Messiah, our hope. Let me read it for you. Verse 1. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, to you, uh, too, little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one, will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from old, from the days of long ago. Here is the first proposition, and I published these for you to, to make it a little bit easier to, to wade through all of this information. When true believers are, are marginalized and discounted by the world, they need to remember that it was out of a, a lowly and humble estate that the Lord brought forth the Messiah. You need to remember that. 
The context is pending invasion from a foreign power, from Micah, remember? Israel was already being marginalized, already discounted by Assyria. They were humiliated and brought low, but God reveals and bring. God uh, revels, rather, in bringing power and might out of lowly and humble conditions. He loves to do that. The prophecy here is that God will bring forth Messiah, notice, from you. The little phrase, from you, that is from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a little insignificant town in Judah. In fact, as the Lord says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was probably subsumed under one of the other clans. It was so small. It certainly wouldn't be the people's choice for warrior stock. But the Lord now addresses it directly, and he singles it out as the place from which Israel's hope would come. So how does this particular proposition encourage God's faithful? Well, in the first place, it encourages us to be faithful in the midst of our weakness because the Lord prefers to work his might through those that the world would consider weak. That is, those whom the world marginalizes and discounts. Micah's prophecy purposely accentuates Bethlehem's insignificance by comparing her to the great clans of Judah, also mentioning her in the, in the context of the superpower of Assyria that was closing in. This small little town way over here, in light of everything that was going on, this is the hope. That's the idea. Israel was certainly powerless to change her present national scene. Once they were part of a, of an, a, a nation whose reputation preceded them, that's true. They were, they were to be feared once upon a time. Whenever they, wherever they went, nations would fear them, knowing that Yahweh was their God. Now, no king, no nation, no temple, no army. The remnant had no hope of surviving, let alone of producing a king who would rule the world. Micah's prophecy that the Lord would bring Messiah from Bethlehem fits God's M.O., I want you to understand that. It fits God's MO. He, ra- he often raised men out of humble settings to be his leaders. I think the outstanding model or example is Moses, right? Before God called Moses, Moses was an outcast of Egypt, a pariah. He became a shepherd and tended cattle for 40 years. He smelled like sheep. He had a speech impediment on top of that. And he was 80 years old, sorry for those of you who are approaching 80, when God called him to lead Israel. But God called him. After all of this, God used what the world would consider weak to shame it. And what God had done with Moses, he also did with others like Jacob and Joseph. Perhaps the one that is most pertinent to our study of Micah is King David. He was the youngest of eight brothers, remember? The youngest. He was the least of them all. He wasn't even a trained warrior, but he too was a sheep herder. He smelled like sheep. Yet he was God's choice for a king, for the king of the monarchy. We give David special attention because it helps our understanding of this proposition. You see, David too was from this marginalized and discounted town of Bethlehem. That's right. By supernatural intervention, 
Both David and his place of origin are miraculously transformed from lowly means to this exalted state of greatness. And in that way, they both foreshadow the career of David's greater son, Messiah himself. It would be from the first David that the greater David would come. In fact, there could be no question that the Holy Spirit intentionally directed Micah to highlight Bethlehem, David's lowly place of birth, because the reputation of this small town would be indicative of Messiah's humble beginnings and lifestyle. Jesus was not only born in Bethlehem, he was born in a stable in Bethlehem, where there were animals, and it smelled too to parents who were so poor they could afford only the lowest fee for Jesus' circumcision sacrifice, that being two turtle doves. And the birth announcement went out to lowly shepherds. Jesus also lived a humble life. He, his success came from his dependence upon God, upon God's sovereign grace. He renounced all human pomp and circumstance and power so that it might be evident to all that the Lord chose him and his strength is in the Lord. Jesus' rise to universal and eternal significance defies all human logic, defies man's ways. He didn't triumph in the way that the world would support by exalting and lording himself over others, but by committing himself in obedience to his God who called him and delighted him. Jesus came to serve and to save the lost. In the second place, this proposition really is a slap in the face to the greatest superpowers that ever threatened the remnant, indeed the greatest that human will could muster at this time. And that's because it teaches us that the best that the world produces, listen very carefully, the best that the world produces is infinitesimally more insignificant before the Almighty than God's people are before the world. Only the intervention, then, of the Sovereign Lord can account for both David and Messiah rising from their insignificance and humble beginnings to greatness, power, and authority. On a practical note, we, the Church, are encouraged like the remnant of old in our sojourning in this foreign land, by the fact that God Almighty calls what the world considers weak and lowly and insignificant to be his bride and to shame the worldly strong and arrogant. Was this not what Paul's encouragement was to the church of Corinth? He explained this very truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What... What does it do for us? Well, it stops us really from wallowing in self-pity, sinful self-pity, from complaining and grumbling, the kind that God would often open the world and swallow people up for doing in the Old Testament, for feeling sorry for ourselves when we're humiliated or marginalized or discounted because of our faith. Those conditions actually become our platforms to glorify God. Rather than moan or complain in our situation, we should boast in our great God who magnifies his power in our weakness. We should expect God to do that. When we're weak, we depend on God for results, and that's exactly what he wants. 
when God accomplishes his will through weak vessels that the world discounts, he is sure to get the credit. Let me move on to the second proposition. When true believers are overcome and defeated by the world, well, they need to remember that it was out of the failed Davidic dynasty that the Lord brought forth a new one that will never fail. I love this one. Verse 1 continues, His goings forth are from old, from days long ago. The remnant couldn't help but feel discouraged at this point. Well, with captivity looming, their world was falling apart. The Davidic dynasty had been cut down long ago, and there was no hope for a resurgence of the, the nation's golden years of King David. If you consider their history, things had gone from great to absolutely miserable. From a united nation under David to a divided nation as a result of civil war. Then to a, a corrupt government and leadership in Judah. And then to this point of pending captivity and servitude. They would eventually be deported to Babylon. But Micah's prophecy, well, it gives, every, gives them every reason to be encouraged in the face of all of this. That is the remnant, the true people of God. He uses their defeated condition to highlight Messiah. And with him points the remnant to a new beginning that will soon dawn on the, on the dark landscape of, of human history. We've already pointed out the solid connections that Micah's prophecy makes between King David and, uh, and Messiah, the new Davidic ruler, with references to this small town in Judea called Bethlehem, also called Ephrathah. We see it for sure in 1 Samuel 17, 12, where all three names are actually associated with King David. It says, now David was the son of, of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. All three names right there. But consider this. It's amazing that God would bypass Jerusalem, the city that he not only chose but loved more than all cities, according to the psalmists, and have Messiah emerge from Bethlehem, the city where David himself was born and, and grew up. Why? Because Messiah would share David's cradle. He would also resurrect the old dynasty to whom God had given an eternal covenant. In the same way that David ushered in a golden age for Israel out of Saul's death and Israel's humiliation under the Philistines, Messiah would emerge as the greater David out of the humiliation of, of King David's house and Judah's ashes. Davidic dynasty was reduced to a stump, but God was the one that cut it down in order to bring it back with a new David in the last days. Isaiah would express this idea in his prophecy too. He said, Then a shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. What this means is that God brought David's dynasty to an end in failure only to raise up a shoot from Jesse's stump, a new Davidic ruler, at the right time. So out of the same lowly crib in Bethlehem and by the same mysteries of divine election and enablement, Messiah would inaugurate Israel's future universal and eternal 
golden age. On a practical note, we are waiting for Jesus' second coming when he will set up his eternal kingdom. But while we wait, we need to remind ourselves that the part of Micah's prophecy that speaks of the exaltation of Messiah has already been fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, and we, the church, belong to an exalted kingdom now. We belong to an exalted kingdom now. It might not feel that way in those times when we're defeated and overcome by the world situation, but but we mustn't trust our feelings, right? They'll mislead you every time. We trust the absolute word of God, which tells us differently. And someday God will overpower the oppressive world system with the kingdom of heaven. Live, therefore, as though you belong to that exalted, powerful, and undefeated kingdom. Because you do. And live in expectation of it as well. Hastening to the third proposition, when true believers become disadvantaged by the world. They must remember that they are God's ordained means to present Messiah to the world. Prophecy says, but as for you, from you one will go forth for me. Now Micah reminds the remnant, the godly line, that, that they would eventually give birth to Messiah and that, and that they were God's means then for this special event to occur. Nothing could ever change that fact. Nothing. And God, was, God had preserved a godly line in the way that he had so that, so that they would produce the only one who would perfectly represent the Father and reveal him to the world, that is Jesus. The line of Jesus, as you may recall, is filled with some shady characters even a prostitute. But it was God's ordained will that he would use these characters in this way. When believers know that they've been ordained by God to endure certain seasons in life for his purposes, that they have been called even to suffer for righteousness, to endure disadvantaged conditions because of their faith and mission, his calling transcends those situations where others may take cruel advantage of them. It transcends them. It lifts us beyond them. God has called us to take the truth about Messiah and his redemptive work to the othermost parts of the world. God has ordained the church with this mission. We are his ambassadors in this foreign and hostile land. And because each of us has been recreated in the image of his dear son, Christ goes forth in you to the world. The world will surely take advantage of us while in this holy endeavor, but it matters not when we understand that we have been chosen for this. We are the means by which God will carve out his perfect plan for the ages, where he will bring the gospel to the othermost parts of the world. And nothing that we face can ever change that. You realize that? Nothing. The world can take advantage of us all at once because of who we are, 
But that disadvantaged position, again, is just another platform for proclamation. So in those times, forge ahead in God's will and say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortal do to me? The answer to God and our, uh, we answer to God rather, and we are fulfilling his will, no one else's. And to be in God's will, no matter how disadvantaged, is still the best place for us to be. Number four, and final proposition, goes like this. When true believers are subjugated by corrupt worldly powers, they must remember that God's Messiah is their final authority and that his rule will ultimately be universal and eternal. Remember that God's Messiah is our final authority and that his rule will ultimately be universal and eternal. We read in the last part of verse 1, he will be ruler in Israel. Very emphatic statement. He will be ruler in Israel. The good news here is simply that there will come a day when the Lord's Messiah will reign over his people and his kingdom will have no end. They now had hope that God would not only deliver them from the tyranny of their foreign oppressors, but also replace their ungodly leadership in Israel, just as he had replaced wicked Saul with, with a king after his own heart. This truth no doubt gave tremendous hope to the remnant of Micah's day, which is why we find messianic expectations very high by the time Jesus came on the scene. When Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire, Jews were waiting for Messiah to deliver them. Now, we, the church, can perhaps resonate with this particular proposition most of all, since we, like the remnant in the Old Testament, are also literally waiting for Messiah to come, just like they were. They were looking at a package deal that included both his birth and his reign. We've seen his birth and look now for his coming reign. And beloved, we can anticipate Jesus' reign to come with greater assurance than the Old Testament saints did, specifically because he's already come for the first time. Being on the other side of the cross, you see, has its advantages. It's part of what makes the new covenant so much better. Because Jesus came once already and fulfilled the first part of Micah's prophecy, we can be sure that he will fulfill the rest of it. There's no question. We believe the Lord when he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. This last proposition operates for us on two levels. One level is this. Jesus is our ruler now. We answer to him now. We know his will in his word and we carry it out now. He is our Lord as well as our Savior and rules our lives now. So even in those instances of life where we may be in oppressive situations under a corrupt government in terrible working conditions, but we cannot escape at the time, perhaps, being used and treated like slaves by either a tyrannical boss or, or some extremist group that holds political sway. We can forge ahead and give our best 
for we are really working for the Lord. Uh, that is a principle that is at work in Colossians 3. Perhaps you're reminded of that, where Paul explains the Christian work ethic to those Christians who are, who are in the worst possible relationship, slavery, how to live righteously. And he told them, work as unto the Lord. Essentially, he says, give your all, do your best work for Christ, because you're really working for him. And that's true of all of us in every situation. Last, the, the, this, this last proposition also works for us on another level. And that's this. Jesus will return, this time as ruler of the universe. He will judge, the perfect, he will judge with perfect equity the living and the dead. To know that there is a time coming when all those who may have gotten away with injustices will have to answer to the Almighty has been and will always remain a great incentive to all believers to carry on in righteousness and in holiness regardless of their context on this earth. And he will also reward the righteous. As one commentator put it, quote, as God in the fullness of time rewarded the childlike faith of the people like Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna, so also he will reward the faith of his elect today who await his imminent second advent. Let me bring this to a close by saying that Christians today all over the world face similar contexts on this earth. Some suffer severe persecution that threatens their work, others their living situation, others their family and even their lives. They will continue to be harassed by corrupt people in powerful positions in society that won't go quietly. And as for Americans, well, we really don't know what awaits the church in these next four years. We don't. The situation is indeed tense. What will happen to our national security? Will we continue to see more internal corruption in staggering proportions? Will the planned and funded rioters and violent movements that commit senseless shootings revolt against law enforcement, will they grow stronger? Will Christians be prevented from worshiping at all? Only the Lord knows. But I think, I think we realize that as civilized and as advanced as we may be in this country, in light of all the unbelievable things that have happened in just the past several years, anything can happen. Depravity knows no limits. At the same time, it is not enough to thwart the plans of the. It is not enough to thwart the plans of the good sovereign God. Is bringing all according to His plan. He is having His way, and He will prevail. Remember the words of the psalmist: "The Lord laughs at the wicked, for He knows their day is coming." He is the one who established nations and destroys them. He brings governments in and out of the world seen as he sees fit. All true Christians are in the midst of it all. Such times, but such times are, are really the best times to be reminded of the great work that the Lord is doing to bring about salvation of his people. Please focus on that. Not just this time of year, but throughout and on until he comes again. It is in these times that the greatest, or the greatness rather, of his work is magnified. 
Yes, we have to endure whatever God serves up for our nation right along with everyone else, but we endure differently than everyone else, right? We know that God is working everything according to his perfect plan for his glory first and foremost, and second, for his, his chosen people. And, and the one fact that will keep God's people who are living right now and who will live right up to the end vigilant about their faith are those who are certain of these four propositions of the Incarnation in Micah's prophecy. We find the same comfort and encouragement to persevere on this earth in the Incarnation as they did. We look back to what they looked ahead to and we look ahead to what they looked ahead to. The historical fact of the Incarnation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We look ahead with them to the eternal reign of Christ. Be encouraged then. It's coming. Be vigilant. Be aggressive about your faith. Be bold and courageous. For the Lord has come and someday will come again and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah.